Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Margaret Hawkins, who's here to talk about her novel, A Year of Cats and Dogs. Margaret, welcome. Hi, Maggie. Thanks for having me. Now, can you please open our interview, as we always do, um, by reading to us a little bit from A Year of Cats and Dogs, just to get our listeners uh, a bit into the book and give them some sense of the prose style? I'd love to. Thank you, Maggie. This is um, the first chapter. In the morning, the crows bear away the bodies of the mice my cat kills at night. He, Clement, leaves them whole in the center of the welcome mat, neatly delivered like a newspaper or a bottle of milk. Except for double pinpricks of blood on their necks, they are perfect. Once there was a bat so light, I thought it was a cluster of dark leaves. Another time, a headless blue jay, then an opossum baby still damp, and pinkly marsupial with soft, shut eyelids, the naked whip of his tail limp and still. But usually I find velvety gray mice with quiet faces and praying hands. I drink tea and watch the crows from the window after I shovel their small corpses onto the lawn. Clement came to live here less than a year ago. It's his first spring with me, hunting season, and people who know these things tell me his gifts won't last, that they are a courtship ritual meant to win me over. But for now, I enjoy them, though morbidly. I've learned to accept that his sweetness in the house is proportional to the murders he commits outside of it. Life in suburbia is not as dull as my city friends think. I live here alone now in a house with a yard and a picket fence, meant for four or two, not for one. Of course, I'm not truly alone because I live with animals. We are three, a woman, a dog, and a cat. I'm 49 years old, heading for the big 5-0, as my ex used to say. My name is Marianne, a name made up of my two grandmothers' names, combined in me are conditions of providing my body in a mismatched china in my cupboard, china from which I serve my family every day. This year, I'm the same age as my dog, Bob, if you count each of his seven years as seven. Bob and I have slowed down some since we, my ex and I, kicked him out of the animal shelter six years ago, a hopeful Rottweiler puppy with a fighting scar on his open face. Since then, he's grown gray around the muzzle while I get highlights three times a year. As for Clement the Orange Cat, I don't know his age. The people who left him here said he was born in the drain pipe on Christmas Day, but didn't know the year. Depending on who tells the story, we named him after either the small oranges that come at Christmas in a wooden crate, or the great right fielder for his ability to catch a rolled grape with one paw. The thing about living with animals is you're never alone. When your partner, your sweetie, your main squeeze, your baby, your heart, your one, your only, your love, your life, your husband, your wife moves out, you think you'll go crazy or at least be lonely. And you do, and you are at first. But then mostly you're not. The animals close in around you, good company that keeps you busy and warm in bed, and they are never critical. Sometimes they leave muddy footprints on the toilet seat or wake you up in the middle of the night with their small insistence, I'm hungry, please fill my bowl. Please, may I go out now? I smell a skunk and I'd like to kill it. Or, I'm cold, please, dear, would you move over so I may get in? And may I please bring this hand bone I found in the alley also? Who could care about those things? You never mind because they so clearly like you, love you even if you believe in that sort of thing. That was the problem with Philip. So often he didn't seem to, like me that is or didn't seem to know if he did or not, and was taking his time to think it over very carefully, ten years to be exact, to figure it out, as if he didn't want to go on record as having made a mistake. We always left a way out, and finally he took it. When he moved out, it was almost a relief that he finally decided. At least I didn't have to wonder anymore what to call him. 
lover, boyfriend, partner, mate, friend. At least now there was an exact word for what he was, ex. When Philip first moved out, he said it was temporary. His company needed him in Seattle, and he'd be back in six months. We both only half believed it, but it was an easy fiction to go along with because in a way you could say he had everything to return to. His clothes in the closet, the silk-lined cashmere blazers on padded hangers lined up by color, his long-dead mother's picture in a silver frame on the mantel, his brand of beer, a high-priced, hard-to-find variety of ale made by Belgian monks still in the refrigerator, the animals. I wondered how he could leave them, Clement and Bob, but he just took things he wanted and left the rest, including me. There's a picture of us together taken not long before he moved out. It used to hang on the refrigerator affixed with a magnet in the shape of a bone until I took it down and shoved it into his copy of The Joy of Cooking, which I'd given him one year for his birthday and which he left behind. I stuck the picture between the pages where the recipe for liver pate was. I made it every year, and he liked it, though if he'd known where the recipe came from, he wouldn't have. The picture was taken by a friend at a dinner party we'd given, and it shows us in the kitchen, posed in front of our Viking stove, holding platters of food. Philip scans a head taller than me in his usual elegant posture, broad shoulders relaxed, black turtleneck and short crop, black curly hair flecked with gray, framing his milky white face. He smiles remotely, his finely contoured lips curving in a satisfied way, that makes handsome dents on either side of his mouth. He holds a platter of garlic noodles piled high with boiled shrimp and artistically tossed with fresh Vietnamese basil. He looks like he thinks he's alone, but he's not. Next to him stands a flushed, round-faced, round-shouldered woman with a laugh-guided smile wearing smudged red lipstick. She leans toward him, looking slightly drunk and overly pink in the face. The straight, shoulder-length, flyaway hair a nondescript color that might once have been brown but was now streaked blonde over gray, she is me. I also wear a black turtleneck, and although I am average in my height and appearance, next to Philip I look small, plain, lumpy, like a smitten tourist, posing with an affable celebrity, pleased to have my picture snapped before he whisked off to his next engagement. I hold a plate of skewered vegetable kebabs fresh off the grill. Philip won't let me near the shrimp. Mm. Chapter one. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, I, I love the way so much happens in that chapter. I mean, you set us up completely for Marianne and the journey that she takes. And, um, you know, there's all, all sorts of things that go on. There's murder, <laughs> you know, and, uh, mice murder and various other types of things happening outside. There's mice, <laughs> mice murder. There's, you know, Philip leaves um, with this abandonment. And, you know, there's all sorts of things happening. But also, it's entirely still, isn't it? And I love that um, that mixture of action under the surface as the kind of on the surface. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Because I think that's a theme that runs through the whole book. Yeah, thank you. Th- thank you for um, catching that. Um, yeah, I was in a sense I was in a hurry to sort of catch the reader up on all the things that had happened that that left our somewhat feckless hero <laughs> stranded there alone and in this kind of, you know, stillness. And so I wanted to contrast, you know, the sense of the world going on around her and her sense of, you know, of, of paralysis. Um, and yeah, I think that is a theme, is that she perceives herself as unable to move and yet the world is like a, you know, it's like an ocean that is that bears her on its, you know, in its current. 
And she's moving too, isn't she? I mean, she has a transition that's not physical. Absolutely, she is. And um, and, and she, I, she isn't aware of it until later in the story. Um, and, and I was thinking about her, you know, sort of her aimless way of searching different philosophies, trying to figure out what to do. And, and that's kind of when I attached it to the I Ching, um, when it seemed like that, you know, that sort of described her process without her knowing it. And, and there is a kind of almost um, Buddhistic overtone to the book, isn't there? Certainly there is. And again, it's sort of, I, I sort of like the idea of her kind of botching things, you know, and, and embracing these philosophies in a, you know, in sort of a partial way. And so there, there's a serious, uh, you know, underlying philosophy, and then there's also her imperfect um, embrace of it. She's quite a quirky pragmatist, isn't she? <laughs> she is a, she she is a pragmatist despite her her um disbelief that she is. But yes, she she figures out how to deal with it. And and it's an inter- again another interesting um series of paradoxes, isn't it? Because um she understands animals. Talk to us a little bit about uh, I guess her gift, really. Yes, well, she does and I guess that is I'm glad you picked up on the idea of paradox, of course, and the Yin Yang symbol on the cover is meant to sort of embody that. But yes, she um, she can communicate with animals, but she can't communicate with people, and that's just one of the many ways in which she is a, a paradox. But yeah, one of the themes is communication with animals, and at the time, um, I I was living with two extremely communicative animals, and had observed that um, you know that to me that's a a serious theme, and I kind of enjoyed the literary transgression of putting talking animals in a, you know, in a serious book. I thought that was kind of fun. I know you're not supposed to do that, but at the same time, I mean, I really did feel that I was um, communicating with my animal sense. So I thought that was a very interesting um, thing in the world to to write about. Yeah, and it's it's a catalyst in a way, isn't it, too, for her change? Absolutely, it is. It. Um, by by taking um, her animals as seriously as she does, it, it kind of moves her back into the world, I think. Hmm. Now tell me how the book began. Where, where did it originate? Oh, uh, that's, you know, that's an interesting question. I was writing a newspaper column. I had been for years, and um, I uh, enjoyed it very much, but I also felt very uh, circumscribed by the... the um, form and the language and the, you know, the, the boundaries of that. Um, and I really wanted to make things up and write about a more interior experience and um, have more freedom with language, um, write really long sentences and, <laughs> and do, um, do things like that. And so I was kind of yearning to write something more um, philosophical and also fantastical, I guess you could say. And um, and then I had this sentence in my mind, um, the first sentence of the book, and I just had it in my head, and I kept thinking it and thinking it. Um, this sentence, in the morning the crows bear away the bodies of the mice my cat kills at night. It was almost like a chant, and I just had to write it down, and then I just kept going. Mm. And the I Ching, did, that, did you begin with it, or did it come in later? Did it give you the structure? 
Good question. Exactly. It did, I did not start with it. Um, I, she was she was using it, um, and and active in time, and um, and so she started using it. And then about halfway through the book, I felt the need for more structure, and I I thought, aha, there are 64 different possible coin throws, and in total they form or they describe this arc of experience from, you know, through this learning process of confusion and then coherence at the end. And I thought, well, that's a perfect description of the experience I want her to have. And so that's when I began attaching it to each chapter. And at first I thought maybe I should make the action in each chapter conform to each um, little aphorism. And then I thought it was more interesting not to. I thought it was more like, you know, the process of seeking out these religious systems where there's a kind of random order and sometimes you get an answer that seems to fit perfectly and sometimes you get the opposite. Sometimes you get something that doesn't fit and then you have to think about how your life might fit with, with this thing that doesn't seem to. And so I left it that way. And is it almost a puzzle for the reader to, to see a poem, to see how it fits? I, 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 hope, I hope people enjoy it in that sense, enjoy it as a puzzle, and not just see it as kind of a, <laughs> a disorderly thing. So um, talk to me a little bit about the path to publication then. You, you've created the book. You've got this book in your hand. How did you go about finding permanent press? You know, it, it's funny. What I did was to write this. Um, without telling anyone. I just, um, it didn't really feel real to me as a book until I was well into it. I didn't, you know, know what it was exactly. And um, then when I got it done, I thought, well, I should find a publisher. So I went out and bought one of those, you know, guide to literary agents and publishers. And I went through the entire list of agents and I checked off every single one that represented literary fiction and then I went back and checked off all the ones that would accept sample pages because I knew there was no way to write a proposal that would make this sound in any way desirable. And so so what I got was a list of a surprisingly short list of like 27 I think agents that would represent a book like mine and would also just accept sample pages. So I began sending um, samples to them and I found Jody Rhodes in California and she um, and she found permanent press. That's a wonderful structured process. <laughs> we do live just very much in the dark. <laughs> we get a lot of writers listening to too, so it's um, it's nice to, you know, give some ideas on how they might go about doing something similar. Yeah, it was very I mean this was not a case of having any kind of a any sort of connection or knowledge of what to do. It was very much kind of do it yourself. And uh, are you pleased with the outcome and the book's reception? Oh, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. It's beyond what I really could have imagined. I mean, it's just the object itself is, is beautiful. And um, Permanent Press is very, because they're small and independent, um, it's a very personal experience. So I can just call the publisher and talk to him, um, which is great. And then there have been very um, insightful reviews and um, positive ones, one of which is yours, and thank you. Um, I had a launch party at a, at a 
really good bookstore in Chicago just this past week. I did a reading, and um, and it was great. So this is like kind of a dream come true. I'm really, really pleased. Do you feel like there's a part of you that has come out of the closet? <laughs> that's so odd that you would say that, um, because that's exactly how I feel. I just wrote something about that. Um, which has not yet been published. So yes, <laughs> yes, it's exactly how I feel. I feel I come out of the closet. I know what it's I, like to be a secret novelist. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I guess you do. I guess other writers understand this. I should, I should be more out now that I'm out. <laughs> whenever I, whenever my gay friends, you know, try to explain what it, what it must, what it is to be closeted, I always feel like I have an inkling of understanding, and they, you know, they look at me like I really don't know what I'm talking about, but. This is this is sort of like coming out. Yes, and I guess you you've got more books coming as well, don't you? I do. I have a second novel um, coming out with a permanent press in September, and then I have a nonfiction um, coming out with a different publisher, Canary Press, uh, in October. And tell me a bit about both of them. Um, well, the the novel is called How to Survive a Natural Disaster. And um, it's about a troubled family uh, told in six voices. Um, the voice, <laughs> do we have time? Do you want to hear which voices they are? You can tell me quickly. We have a little time. Okay. Um, the, the voice of the two daughters, um, May and April, um, the mother, uh, who's, who's a woman who wants many things and can't seem to achieve them, um, and the father, who's a who's a bit of a free spirit, and, and the family friend, and then the the dog, Mr. Cosmo. So each of these six perspectives is is told, and it's it's about how these how they have a crisis and then they have to adapt to it and rise to the occasion. Mm. And I love that there's another dog in it as well. Oh, there is, and he's a very interesting dog to me. He's a three-legged Weimaraner. And um, he's a very sort of, I don't know, he's, he's a little bit vain, but he's very sensitive and observant. <laughs> I like him very much. <laughs> and what about recipes? Um, will there be recipes in this one? I love the corn chowder in particular. <laughs> oh, thank you. The corn chowder, that's a good recipe, um, actually. And, and that really is, it's not, a, it's not autobiographical, but that recipe really is my father's corn chowder recipe. Um, you know, I, it was another kind of act of transgression, you know, to put recipes in a literary novel is, you know, not <laughs> not something people would, anyone would recommend doing. But um, but I like the way, well, first of all, recipes never really describe to me the process that I experience when I cook. So I thought it would be fun to really write about what you really think about when you're cooking. And that's kind of how those came about. But they're all real recipes. And, and I love the way they um, they provide a kind of um, panacea as well. They they solve the problem that they're being cooked for. Yeah, yeah they do. I, um, I oh, there's something so perky and optimistic about most recipe books. I thought this one would be fun if we could just you know sort of embrace the despair which the cook is experiencing. Plus, it also I think it almost brings the reader in. You, you get the sense reading those recipes. That this is some kind of journal that you're being, you know, you're sort of privy to. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad that it reads that way because that's what I meant, meant it to be. Mm. And tell me a bit about the nonfiction. 
Well, that is a, um, a memoir of sorts, not because my life is particularly interesting, but it's, um, it's about my sister who is uh, schizophrenic and um, she was an was a extremely um, oh, bright, beautiful, um, ambitious young woman uh, who lived in Iraq for a few years with her husband, who was an academic. And when they came back to the United States, this was in the 70s, um, she was extremely ill. It was like she was gone. Um, she was not the person who had gone, who had left three years before. And so she lived with my parents um, for over 30 years and for various reasons, um, never saw a psychiatrist, was never medicated, and after a few years, never left the house. Uh, after my father died in 2006, um, I became her legal guardian, and, um, and, and uh, I was able to find a, a social worker and a psychiatrist to come to the house, and her life has really expanded, and she's doing very well. So it's a book about her. Mm. And I suppose it, it provides almost a, a toolkit as well for others in a similar situation. I hope so. Um, I really struggle with the idea of whether this was a good idea to write. Um, I, I thought it was an interesting story, um, but, I, but I ultimately decided that I, uh, I want to help anybody who's in this state because I think there's so much you know, shame and fear and um, embarrassment and uncertainty associated with the situation in families that um, I just want people to know that even though our situation was quite unusual, um, it, it, as soon as I started asking for help, I, I got it. Mm. Well, what's the title of that? Because I'm sure there'd be lots of people listening who'd like to get hold of it and, and uh, you know, some idea of when it's coming out too. Yes. Um, the title, I think, <laughs> we're still sort of discussing it. I believe the title is how we got Barb back. Her name is Barb, and then the subtitle is the story of my sister's return from schizophrenia. And it's not a cure, but it is a kind of return to herself. Um, and it comes out in October, and the um, publisher is the Canari Press, C-O-N-A-R-I. Excellent. And the other one is how to avoid natural disasters. Is that right? How to survive a How to survive. <laughs> and it's, frankly, I just cribbed that title right from a CNN headline. One of the characters is an obsessive who writes down all the CNN headlines every day and tries to make sense of her life by reading them in order. So that's what that's called. And I was going to ask you, your publisher actually called it another unusual invention. <laughs> well, that's, that's a... <laughs> That's a polite way of saying it's pretty weird. <laughs> that is wonderful. I was going to ask you what's unusual about it, but I think you've kind of covered it. <laughs> I think there, there are some there are some characters with some you know personal problems that make them behave in antisocial ways. Now, I, I mean that brings me back to a little bit to a year of cats and dogs and and Stan as well. Because you've got yeah. Stan and Marianne, and, and they almost form a kind of team against the two flashy kind of <laughs> semi-antagonists, Donna and Philip. Yeah, they, they do. Well, Philip and um, Donna, and then Susan, of course, the mm -hmm. sister. Um, yeah, they're, they are. They're both people who are um, sort of 
you know, down to earth and kind of modest and, and um, perhaps feel a little beleaguered by the fleshier people in the world around them. Um, and Stan has resolved his relationship with that that um, problem and, you know, is, is this self-respecting, hardworking person with a mission. And Marianne is sort of making the transition um, to, you know, sort of feeling that it's okay not to be, you know, a superstar. Yes, and I also got the sense that, you know, again, as a group, they form that same yin and yang quality, that, you know, you've got the the kind of external beauty versus the internal beauty, and, you know, the different sides of a kind of the, the coin of the humanness. It, it, well, exactly. I mean, that's what I wanted this to be, to have these many different contrasting um, qualities. And I, I also think it's interesting sometimes in sibling relationships where um, two, you know, where they, the two sisters have these opposite personalities and they almost take the whole human character and divide it up and say, well, you be this part and I'll be this part. And it's unconscious and it's unintentional, but sometimes you see it and it happens. Mm, that's right. Now, um, tell me, we, we don't have much time left, but tell me a little bit about, I guess, just some of your literary goals. What kinds of things would you like to work on in the future? You've got two books coming out this year. Um, you've got a book in, from last year. What, what sorts of things are on the cards for you? Oh, well, what a lovely question. Thanks for inviting me to think about that. Um, I'm, I'm finishing up another manuscript now. I don't know. I mean, finishing is sort of a relative word. I don't know how close I am. But it's another, um, it's another novel. It's, uh, it's about a woman who's organizing a party. And it's kind of a long day. There's two parts. It's a long day um, as these women come together to have this party and we can learn about them. And then something in the future after that. Um, so I'm working on that. And then um, I have another idea for something about a younger person. And I'm thinking maybe, you know, it, I don't think it's young adult fiction. I think it's probably too dark. But um, maybe about a, 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 a teenager. Mm. Although it seems to me to be the case that older young adults um, sort of, you know, 18, 17, 18, do tend to go for big dark books these days. Well, that's true. There is, you know, I mean, such an interest in vampires and <laughs> associated monsters. So perhaps, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm also a teacher, and I hate the thought of imposing my, you know, sort of dark spirit on, on fresh young people. But, but maybe we'll see. I don't, it's, it's really just an idea now. I don't know. Um, I don't know quite how that will result. Yeah. What that will into. Do you have a website or a place that you can direct listeners to to find out more about you or keep in touch with what you're up to? Um, I don't. I, I don't yet. Um, and I, I need to organize one. In the meantime, though, they can certainly um, make contact with um, my publisher, Permanent Press, um, that's published A Year of Cats and Dogs, and also Canary Press in the future, which is the publisher that will come out with my, um, my nonfiction book. Oh, that's great. And P Permanent Press has a pretty interesting blog, too, that readers might have. Yeah, oh, yes. There's a very interesting blog and a newsletter, and there's always good stuff going on there and many interesting books coming out of them. So I recommend that anybody interested in literary fiction um, check them out.
That's wonderful. Well, that's, that's just about all we have time for. Thank you so much, Margaret, for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Maggie. This was so fun. Now, our next guest is poet Felicity Plunkett, and she's visiting us next month to talk about her prize-winning poetry book, Vanishing Point. So we'll see you then. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>